and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Michael Imperioli to the program today. Michael is probably best known for his acting, writing, and directing for television, movies, and theater. He won an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Christopher Moltisani in the legendary series The Sopranos, and his fiction writing has recently found its way to the reading public. His debut novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, was published in 2018, and he has a story in the anthology from Akashic Books, The Nicotine Chronicles, which is edited by Lee Child and also includes contributions from Joyce Carol Oates, Jerry Stahl, Hannah Tenty, and Eric Bogosian. Michael, how'd you get the opportunity to be part of the Nicotine Chronicles? The publisher, Akashic Books, published my novel in 2018. Johnny Temple, who founded the company, was my editor on that book, and he he emailed me one day and said, do you smoke cigarettes or did you ever smoke? That's all he said. And I said, I used to smoke. He said, okay, I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and then he mentioned this project. You know, I try to say yes to everything that Johnny and Akashic Books asks because they're great. You weren't worried that it was some kind of sneaky question from your health insurance company? Not from him. No, I trust him. But then it was like, well, that's the theme. And, you know, when I was thinking about a story, you know, my first thought was my relationship to cigarettes and smoking. And I, and I really didn't find anything so interesting there. So I got a little more abstract about it, you know, and just started taking it for what, it, you know, all right, well, nicotine, smoking, cigarettes, tobacco, and just started to relate it through what tobacco was and, and its history. And then that's how the story started coming into focus. You wrote the story, Yasiri, for the collection. It wasn't something that you already had worked on? No, it was for the collection. The title character comes from two very strong bloodlines. What were Yasiri's grandparents very good at? One is a psychic line, a line of psychics, and, and one is a, a line of actual rollers of cigars, you know, and the, you know, the making of cigars. You know, cigars are used in certain magical practices, particularly in the Caribbean, like Santeria has aspects of the use of tobacco and cigars. And as though some other more obscure forms of sorcery and magic, she's a, a lineage of both the magical side and just the practical side of the, of the making of the cigars. Are you a cigar smoker yourself? Never was. You know, I kind of always love the smell of it. When it's burning, the smell of cigars I find amazing, but I could never, the times I tried it, it just did not work for me. Although I was a big cigarette smoker and the smell of cigarettes I hate, <laughs> <laughs> but the smell of cigars even still, now that I'm not a smoker at all, still is where I find really alluring. Are you familiar with the uh, writer and musician Kinky Friedman? Yeah, I actually saw him play at the Cutting Room. I guess it was the end, towards the end of the last year. It was a Lone Star Cafe reunion, and Kinky was headlining it. Uh, he was a lot of fun, actually. I remember he used to say, don't think that I'm buying their cigars, I'm burning their fields. Right. <laughs> He's a character, man. He, he's still a lot of fun to, uh, to watch perform, I have to say. Had you been down to like the Dominican Republic and watch people roll cigars before? Or is that something that you were unfamiliar with? You know, just as a tourist in the Dominican Republic, I'd seen it. I spent a, almost a year in Puerto Rico, three different occasions. I was in Puerto Rico for extended amounts of time. So the setting is San Juan, really. Obviously, Dominican Republic is much more famous for cigars and stuff. 
you know, there's there was one place in old San Juan that makes cigars that I popped my head in a couple of times. But, you know, I didn't do too much investigations into that. You know, uh, I didn't have a lot of that in my background, but I need a place. I need to see the places when I write. You know what I mean? It re it's really important to me. So using San Juan and Condado and the old San Juan, you know, in my mind, also uh, Rio Piedras and those neighborhoods really were very vivid and allowed me to write the story. What took you down for your previous stays in Puerto Rico? I did a pilot, which I was there for like two months. Then the pilot got picked up into a series and I was there for much longer. I forget, seven, eight months. And then I did a movie there for a couple of months. But all three situations were a lot of the same people because the filmmaking community is pretty small there. So you see a lot of the same faces. And I made a lot of a lot of friends in Puerto Rico, uh, many of whom I keep in touch with. And I really enjoyed working there a lot. And, and, and I love the island and, and the people, the spirit. And they're great, really unique people and culture there. It's a very interesting place because it's, you know, it's an American territory, but it's not America per se, right? They're not allowed to vote in the primary elections, but they're allowed to vote in the presidential or vice versa. I forget how that works. They're either allowed the primary or they're not and one or the other. They can vote the presidential. But, you know, they, of course, were drafted during Vietnam like crazy, yet they don't enjoy, you know, enjoy a lot of the same benefits that citizens of the states do. You know, a lot of people wanted independence at one time. Some people don't, never wanted independence and wanted statehood. It's an interesting place. Yeah, I was just reading in uh, Bloomberg Business Week that 400,000 people from Puerto Rico relocated to Florida because of the hurricane damage and the, the terrible response they got from the federal government and that they are eligible to vote in the election when they are in the United States proper. Right. Oh, that's good. That's good to know. I'm glad that they're getting the, their due representation. That's important. Yeah, there's a huge Puerto Rican community in Orlando, Florida for, for mm -hmm. some um, I think outside, it might even be bigger now than the New York community, maybe. So was that for Mad Dogs when you were down there? Mad Dogs, and then I did a movie called Primal with Nicolas Cage there as well. When you were down there, did you have any firsthand experience with alternative spiritual practices that we in the North don't know much about? No, but I have in, in other times in my life, more in the States, actually, but with people not from the States. The stuff that I describe in the story is a little bit of, it's a bit of a smorgasbord. It's not like a strictly accurate practice. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and a little bit of imagination. You made your own syncretic thing. In some ways, yeah. I don't like messing with those things, so I don't want to be too accurate you know, because <laughs> those energies to me are very real. And, you know, I want to have a little bit of distance from that. You know what I mean? Because certain things should be kept secret so there is a very strong presence in the book and that's the leaf what is and or who is the leaf the leaf is obviously this tobacco but it's what a lot of cultures you know believe in spirits within certain elemental or earth, you know things of the earth and, and you know it's like before they build you know, there's spirits of the soil or spirits of the creek or things like that. And there's the methods of appeasing them or not appeasing them and making peace with them. So there'll be a harmonious connection to the land or the water. 
And I'm extending those things to to the leaf as well. You know, look at the power of the leaf. Look at you know where it, its origins. You know, the tobacco industry's origins and the murder, the destruction, the death, the cancer, the money, all those things that became extreme in so many forms just based on the leaf. So there is, without a doubt, there's an immense power to it, whether we want to consider it supernatural or not. But by placing whatever value has been placed on it and and all the terrible things <laughs> fortunes made and lost and lives you know murdered and enslavements and god knows what else there definitely is some kind of energy power there so in the story you know this is the woman is part of a lineage that has tried to harness that you know make harmony and peace with that power and use it for some kind of assistance in worldly matters now, an American comes to Yasiri for her help, and he should have known better than to lie to a seer. You know, he goes to the seer as a last resort, right? And he goes partly out of superstition, partly out of maybe it's a last-ditch attempt, partly out of he doesn't want to have to resort to actually paying a hitman and murder. And I think his reasons for going to her are a bit conflicted, you know, but hey, he's going to give it a shot like a lot of people who have a lot of power through money and that kind of thing, they kind of think that money can kind of buy anything. And he hasn't been able to do that. But he is, you know, hoping for some kind of resolution to his problem. And this is a pretty simple one. So that's why he's there. The character is, there's a couple of things at play. Obviously, there's metaphor and allegorical things about colonialism, um, of course. But there's also... What I learned when I was there and, and actually came across and met, there's certain Americans who make a lot of money here. And then if they establish residency in Puerto Rico, so if they can prove they live there six months plus one day out of the year, they don't have to pay federal or state income. When you're making 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year, that's a lot of money. Yet, you know, they're not paying taxes here, so we don't really benefit, you know, the citizens of the U.S. and whatever tax, whatever benefit we'd get from that, that tax money, we don't get. Nor do they really contribute that much to the benefit of the island and the people on the island, besides maybe the few people that they hire to, you know, drive them or clean their house or cook food for them or whatever. So I found that an interesting thing <laughs> when I was there. Yeah, that epigraph of Columbus at the very beginning of the story, you know, really does set up the situation there. Yeah, and that's kind of a kind one. The first time I read anything out of Columbus's journals was in Howard Zinn's book, People's History of the United States. And I don't have the exact quote. I wish I did in front of me because it says something akin to one of his first entries was in the journal was that the people swam out to us bearing gifts as we approached. They're docile, kind, open-hearted people. Send me three more boats and we'll take over the whole island. <laughs> I mean, that was like one of the first entries, you know, in his journal that he wanted messages or whatever that he wanted to get back to the king. You know, the first entry was about just complete exploitation, you know, and, and the intentions to that and the ease in which he, would, he thought it would take place. So this entry in the journal is specifically about tobacco and noticing that it's of value to them and trying to discover why it's of value and if it should be of value to the Europeans. And this American's approach to business is to screw over whoever he can, whenever he can, it seems. 
it's pretty black and white. I mean, I, I don't really paint Fred with much subtlety because it's a, you know, it's a short story, you know. I looked at it as like an allegory, you know, and he's, yeah, he's raping, pillaging and plundering. And he thinks that because of this guy and his family's wide open, welcoming and, you know, being enamored of the, the wealth and the power of this rich American, that he's just going to run roughshod over them. And then, you know, those instincts become demonic because they just increase on themselves, you know, and multiply. And, and it's not enough for him just to make money. It's not enough for him just to cheat this guy out of money. You know, the bloodlust inflames him to the point when he just needs to consume everything that this guy has, basically, and leave him with nothing. There's some people to be seem to be very contemptuous of anything that they perceive as weakness. Yeah, weakness and also, you know, and a value, right? There was something of, you know, the, the, the property and getting the getting the apartments built and that's a value and whatever sexual gratification the value of these young people that he took sexual advantage of and and so it's those things not unlike what actually happened during the you know colonization of the new world to actually read about what all columbus did is just sickening yeah yeah basically it is and you know some people say well you have to look at it in terms and context of the time it's like uh, okay. Well, I'm sure the people of the island, whatever, in whatever context and whatever time you look at it, would feel the same exact way that he was horrific. You know what I mean? It doesn't, you know, excuse whatever behaviors were done. Yeah. I mean, the Inquisition or in Spain or in Portugal or in India, I mean, it was all horrific. Yeah. There's no shortage of that kind of stuff in our history, unfortunately. Now, we don't want to give away too much of what happens in the course of the story, but it did have a little bit of maybe an O. Henry or a Guy de Maupassant turn to it. Yeah, I fell in love with the stories of Mohamed Mrabet, who's a Moroccan writer who was translated by Paul Bowles and, and was a friend of Paul Bowles, who I believe spoke in a language, I, I don't know if it's a dialect of Arabic or something called the Mogrebi, which was not a written language from what I understand. So he would speak these stories and Bowles would record them and then transcribe them and translate them. A lot of them involved hashish and marijuana and magic. And I just loved his writing. I mean, I, I discovered him like in my late teens and, and, and always just felt, I, I just, you know, it's magical realism and, and just fantastic. The, the, the the precision of the stories. And they often had this, that kind of, like you said, Oh Henry and kind of twist and come up and kind of thing. And um, I will say a lot of the flavors also influenced the magical stuff by the books of Carlos Castaneda, who, who I, I'm a big fan of. Although I read his books as nonfiction, not as, I don't think they, you know, it's been controversy about, what's true and what's not, but I, I believe it as fact when I read his books. So a lot of the, a lot of the specifics of the magic and the seeing and those things comes from Castaneda. Now, Akashic has had a series of books about cocaine, heroin, marijuana, speed. What do you think it's different writing about a legal drug like nicotine? It's an interesting thing. The weird thing about nicotine addiction to me is that it's it's so much less of a, once you have a tolerance for it, you really, the only benefit you get from it is 
the relief of the withdrawal symptoms of the, you know, and the re relief of the craving for it, at least with the other stuff, you get some kind of altered state of consciousness, be it a speed consciousness or a cocaine euphoria or a marijuana, you know, mellow, chill or psychedelic experience or whatever, you know, whatever, or, or, or some kind of opiate, you know, dream. But nicotine is almost like nothing. It doesn't really offer all that much. Yet it's as it maybe the most addictive out of all that stuff in a weird way. You know, even you think of like the most addictive drug outs, you know, like the crack or something like, you know, something like that. It's like, even that, I think it's hard to do from the time you get up till the time you go to bed every day for years, year in and year out. Because when you smoke cigarettes, that's basically what you do. You smoke all day long, every few minutes. There are very few people who just do it once in a while, you know. And I'm very suspect of the people who say they do. <laughs> I don't always believe them. <laughs> so what kind of suspicion do you have about these folks? That they're really smokers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those people, I only have one or only when I drink, you know, and it's like, or they're about to be smokers. Cause that's, that's, a, I, I mean, I tried to do that. I was never able to, although everybody's different, you know, I should, I shouldn't be so judgmental. It was pretty remarkable that in the course of the stories in the collection that the overwhelming majority was about cigarettes and there were only a couple that mentioned, including yours, cigars. Well, I mean, cigarettes are way more prevalent, that's for sure, because they're cheaper. The character Yasiri even, you know, kind of talks about cigarettes as being the corruption of the leaf, you know, the pulverization and the, you know, whatever the chemical treatment of it and the alteration of it to be a corruption of the of the leaf itself you know and uh and that's done basically for economics right you know it's cheaper and it makes it more addictive and so cigarettes are just so much more prevalent now have you had a chance to read the other entries in the nicotine chronicles i'm making my way through it now oh i loved park and play by hannah tinti that was a, a really cool story mm -hmm. about the um the casinos the girl who worked in the, in, the, in the hotel in the casinos yeah that's a really good one i'm a big fan of jonathan ames oh yeah deathbed vigil and my simple plan by ariel gore my two favorite ones it's kind of an honor to be in a book with jerry stall and and, and joyce carol oates and, mm -hmm. uh, lee child and people i'm very excited about that i really enjoyed the uh, peter kamani one that comes later on in the story it's uh, a few stories after years called freshly cut and it's set in Africa and Kenya, and it's an amazing story. There are so many amazing stories in this book. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good collection. I mean, um, Akashic does things right. I have to say, they uh, they're very specific about what they do, and they care a lot. When I finish my novel, I I work with ICM as an actor, so they have a big publishing branch. So I met a a really great publishing agent through ICM. He gave me some notes and said, we can, I, we, I could sell this to an indie press right away, but we could go to a bigger publisher if you do this, this, and this. And they weren't commercial notes, whatever, but he just kind of was heading off the pass, you know, heading me off at the pass as far as probably what publishers would want. So it was a little short at the time and, and I was really stuck and I didn't do anything for months. And then I Googled best independent publishers in America. And Akashic just seemed to be right up my alley. So I wrote an email to Akashic and I wrote an email to City Lights and I never heard back from City Lights, but I did hear back from Akashic. And from then on, every step of the way, it's just 
working with them both on both projects has been just a joy. And I did a bunch of events with them and readings and festivals and all kinds of stuff and press. And, and I just love working with them. I mean, it's also just refreshing and inspiring to see small companies like this thriving. Well, a 50% hit rate on your debut novel, Send Out, that's pretty darn good, I think. Well, I was vetted. You know, his former roommate worked with me on something. So he vetted me through her because he knew that she's one of his best friends. And he called her up and said, what, what, you know, because I gave him a pitch with the idea. I said, this is what the book's about. And, and he kind of liked what it was, you know, the idea of it, but then vetted me through my friend, Natalie, our mutual friend. And I passed that test, thank God. Both your novel and the short story Yosiri are written in the first person. Does any of your prose uh, approach it from a close third or an omniscient third? Uh, I did a short story for the Rome International Festival of Literature in 2018. I, they commissioned a story that was set in like the time of Christ, but in New York City. Because at the time of Christ in my New York City, it was, you know, the Romans were running things, the Roman Empire. And that was in a third person. So out of the three prose things that I've really finished, one was third person. You know, the first person, I guess, appeals to, I think, maybe the actor in me in a way, because you think into the character, the logic of the character. Like as an actor, a lot of what you're doing is figuring out the logic of the character, why they're going to do certain things and why, you know, based on who they are, how they make their choices. And I think that translates really well to writing prose in the first person. So you've also written for stage and screen, and it seems like that would give you a leg up on the dialogue aspect of things. But when you're transitioning to prose, was there anything you found particularly difficult? I don't think it necessarily made writing dialogue. Actually, in this, in your series, there's not a ton of dialogue. It's, it's, not, it's not dialogue heavy. You know, I never really looked at it that way. Listen, it's hard to write a good sentence. To me, everything hangs on if you can write a good sentence. And I find reading stuff aloud really helps. And when I read it aloud, I can, you know, if it sounds right, more than even if it reads right, if it sounds right, then you're doing something right. If there's like a flow to the sentence and a little bit of a rhythm, a juice to it. When I started writing the novel, I started it in the third person and I had a lot of trouble. It just, the scope was way too wide and I couldn't find a way in. You know, the scope was so wide, I couldn't figure out the angle of approach. It was almost too, too much to describe or, or hone in on. And when I finally figured out, okay, make it like it's a journal of this kids, that kind of became the engine really to, to be, for me to be able to finish it, or see it through. Now, a lot of times, first novels for writers can be fairly biographical, but the circumstances of your character's life are quite different from your upbringing. Do you think you're being older when you did that first novel that you'd kind of maybe gotten past that a little bit? Yes and no, because I did have a similar experience of growing up close to Manhattan, but not in Manhattan, and then experiencing it as a teenager. I got to Manhattan, started spending most of my time in Manhattan at 17, which is a little bit older than this kid, but I was kind of on my own then. I know it was 1983. It was a little bit later than, than this period of time, but just that the idea of from someplace that's not the city and being in the city and, and, and that like you're in Oz, that experience is very similar, but all the events are fiction. So I wanted to connect to my son who at the time was 16 in 2013 and he was going through some, you know, teenage difficulties. So I was like, maybe I should write, maybe writing about it will help me remember what it's like to be that age so I can connect 
understand him a little better. So I started writing this coming of age story and I said it in 77, just because I have a real fondness for that period of time in New York for a number of reasons. Uh, you co-wrote Summer of Sam. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a nostalgia for that. And, and I just think it's very fertile ground for me personally. You know, so I started this and then I found this first person thing and started writing it. And three months into that, Lou Reed died. And we had become friends in the last 10, 12 years of his life. And before that, I was a fan, for, you know, through, and he was a big artistic hero of mine, you know, from my 20s on. So his death hit me on a number of levels as an artist, as a, as a friend, as a New Yorker, and as a fan too. And then all of a sudden it was like, through kind of mourning his loss, it was like, well, what if he's in the story? And then that started to really take shape and, and take over. I'll have to say, uh, I didn't grow up listening to his music. You know, I grew up in country and Western land, but seeing him in blue in the face, he mm, was just yeah. a hoot in that movie. Talking about smoking as well. There's more nicotine there. Yeah, he's really good. He was good if he could improv when he had, you know, I've saw him a couple of times when he had dot lines and he's not very good as an actor. You could get non-actors to be very believable on film, especially if you let them improv and they're kind of secure in themselves. You could get really believable stuff from them, but it's much harder to give them lines, especially like you see a lot of musicians, you know, cause they think it's cool casting. You put the musician in the movie to play themselves or play something like themselves. And very often you give them lines and then they, they're just stiff, but people who know how to use non-actors more or less let them improv. And very often you can get sometimes genius performances out of them, but it's much harder for people who don't have experience, much harder for them to make, written dialogue seemed believable. So you yourself started a band. Did any of your acting background help you out when you're being on stage performing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because it's, you know, you have your dialogue, which is the lyrics of the song and you, you know, you have your, your physicality as whatever instrument you're playing. So that, and there, there are similarities you're relating to an audience, you know, acting on stage in a play is, is very satisfying medium because you do the whole story. You don't stop. If you make a mistake, you have to cover it up and kind of go through it. You know, it's live and it's happening and you're creating it in the moment. And the same thing with live performance. And, you know, when you're performing music, it's the same thing, but it's a, you know, really, if you're connecting to your material, that emotional expression is, you know, very similar. In theater and in music, you have that immediate connection with the audience. And, and everything is just so visceral and real and of the moment in writing either for screenplays or writing prose, it seems like such a solitary pursuit. How do you cope with that solitude? <laughs> I don't know if you do. You just deal with it. The blank page, man, is a very, I mean, at least as, I mean, to be a really good actor is very hard, but at least you know what you have to do and say for the most part, because it's, given to you, right? I mean, how you execute and how you do it, obviously, is where the art comes in. But with writing, you know, very often, it's just you and that blank page, man, making something out of it. There's nowhere to hide, you know, with prose. That's it. You know, like even a screenplay or, or, or a teleplay, you know what I mean? That's not meant to be a work unto itself, a work of art, if, if you will unto itself. It's a map. It's a schematic. You know, once you make the finished product, you, the screenplay you put in, you know, in a birdcage, basically, it has no function other than that. But whereas, and screenplay can be 
artistically written and elegantly done and executed, of course, but the whole point of it is to make the movie. Whereas prose, you that's it. You live and die. Everything hangs on the sentence. Either it's good or it's not. You know, Vonnegut said, writers demand a lot of work from readers. First of all, it's a big time commitment to read a book. And second of all, you know, when you watch a movie, you just sit back and you the images are there and the sound is there and you just let it come to you with a book. You have to, as a reader, you have to create all those things in your head. And everyone's vision of it's completely different and subjective based on their own experiences and likes and dislikes. So, you, you know, the reader does a lot of work. It's a uh, collaboration that you never get to hear back from usually. Yeah, big collaboration, big time. And maybe the most intimate of collaboration, you know, in terms of art. Now, do you have another book-length project you're working on right now? Yeah, started it during this uh, quarantine. I haven't really dedicated the regular time I need to really get it going, but I have a, ch uh, a slice of it. So that's good. It's nice to have a slice. It sounded like you were going to say chunk there for a second, and you not a chunk. You, you pulled it back. Yeah, I wouldn't. I won't call it a chunk yet. <laughs> You've recently gotten into my game, radio and podcasting, with your show Talking Sopranos. What's it like being the host of a show as opposed to the person that's being interviewed on countless media tours? Well, there's certainly a learning curve because when we started, we really didn't know what we were doing, and it, I think it took us at least six episodes to figure out how to make it work both from a technical point of view, because we were two different places in the country and we had headphones on and there's a little bit of delay and you, I'm looking at it in a computer and not in the same room. So it's not really a conversation as in intimate as we had hoped because we wanted to do it together in the studio. But that wasn't possible in March when we started, when we, you know, we planned on launching the thing. But I am enjoying it. I think I'm enjoying it because I'm talking about something I really like, which is The Sopranos. And I haven't I haven't seen these episodes since they really initially aired. So I'm watching them with a lot of attention and looking into it for a lot of details. And it's been fun because I could say whatever I want, talk about whatever I want. You know, I don't have to let the interviewer dictate where the conversation can go. And I like to talk about, you know, the music of The Sopranos and, and my passion for music and the, the, the music of the show that, you know, and the connections between the musicians and why that song and what else this musician has done. And, and actors, I love actors. I have a lot of affection and respect for actors. And there's a ton of them in The Sopranos. And a lot of them I've worked with before and after. And a lot of them have done great work before and after. And I like talking about those connections and through theater, those connections and other films that they did and get into some film history and some, talk about some films that I like. You know, and connecting a lot of the cultural references of the Sopranos and, and, and getting into that, you know, especially the ones that turn me on. So the, it's been really fun. And Steve's one of my closest friends. I think people enjoy that. We're two very, very different people with lots of very different likes and dislikes and stuff. And I think that's why it works because I think our relationship in some way carries the camaraderie of the show that people liked. Certainly beloved by the Soprano fans, that's for sure. They wait for it to debut like at midnight on Sunday night, you know? So it's, it's kind of cool that it's been so embraced by the fans. Steve Shrip is also a professional comedian. Do you have to kind of talk yourself in trying not to compete with him while he's going off? He's not a professional comedian. You know, I thought that too. I'll be honest with you. Oh, I, I know he was a booker, but I thought he did stand up too. No, I thought exactly the same thing. 
And when I asked him, he said, no, he's never done stand-up. He is very funny. He's done a lot of comedic performances as an actor. And he's done stuff on The Tonight Show as like a comic correspondent and stuff like that. So he's done a lot of comedic performances. He wouldn't say he's a comedian, though he knows a lot of comedians because that was his world. But he's never done stand-up. But he's very, very funny. You know, I think what we've found is to embrace the differences and kind of even play them up a little bit because it makes for a lot of fun. You know, he's very blunt and outspoken. I'm, I, you know, I don't always like to be public about my opinions, of, especially of other artists and other people and stuff like that. I'm not always so, so open about those things publicly. Well, um, yeah, you meet everybody twice. Well, that doesn't bother Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Which people really love that about him. And so do I, that he, he'll just, you know, call it like it is. I mean, I'm, we're just different people that way. That's kind of the fun of the show, I think. With acting, writing, directing, writing prose, winning uh, cooking competitions on TV, are there any other creative fields that you're looking at exploring? Yeah, it seems kind of ridiculous, right, when you, when you list all those things together. But, you know, when I started out going to acting school, very quickly, I was in a band. I was playing guitar. I was writing music. I was singing in a band. I started producing theater doing independent film, writing screenplays. I never went anywhere writing. Pro like I started doing all that stuff in my late teens, early twenties. So in many ways, I'm just doing what I always did. You know, it's just like, nobody really knew that nobody really, you know, there wasn't stuff. Most of it wasn't visible to the public and things like that. So to me, none of that's like, now I'm going to try this. It's like, you know, a lot of things develop like writing, you know, being able to write a novel, but like, man, I wrote for 10 years. I had stacks of notebooks of stuff that I never finished and threw it away and then was able to write a screenplay finally, because I somehow cleared away the clutter. But most of these things I've been working on, you know, at least technique wise for many years, you know, I, I imagine some people might look at it as very dilettantish or whatever, you know, but that was part of the eighties in New York. There was a lot of cross pollinization and people, you know, performance artists who were actors who were also musicians and in bands and doing, you know, theater and movies. It, it's just kind of the world I grew up in. The cooking, that was a special thing. You know, my kids, as I learned to cook, because my wife can't cook at all. She's good at building things. I'm not. She's good with, you know, power tools. I'm not, you know. But I, so I had to learn to cook after we got married because I like to eat. And I'm really good at cooking with whatever's in the refrigerator. Manager said, no, they wanted you to do this show Chop. And I, I was like, I never heard of it. My kids said, no, you should do it. You'll win if you go on. And it was for charity. So I had a lot of faith in the charity. And I won... 50,000 bucks for the charity, which was in Tibet. And we built two schools with that money for kids who had, yeah, they were the first of their generation, their family to ever go to a school. So that money went to really good cause. So how has following the noble eightfold path changed your life and your creative side? Probably be better for you to ask other people that, you know, I mean, I have my own opinion, but it might not be really reality. I mean, hopefully that, that kind of practice makes you a better human being. I mean, ultimately, whether or not that's the case, like I said, that's that's up to the people around me to say or not say. You know, a lot of people ask about, you know, how it affects the work, creative process and things like that. I don't really know. I mean, certainly learning about and studying Buddhism, you know, you just have more of a perspective on the world, on the history of it and, and elements of it. And, I, and 
you can infuse that into into writing you know with a lot of interesting flavor you know as an interesting spice and stuff like that but the, the actual practice of it and how it affects you as a human being and how it relates to the creative process i don't really know you know maybe it makes you more uh, more easygoing on the set or more patient or things like that maybe probably meditation improves your concentration which is really important for acting and writing of course and music whatever artistic discipline I, I i'm sure it does but that's not why i did it and why, i mean really do it you know for you know to be a better human being so you know you can help be make the world better i guess well it would seem like i'm just guessing i've never acted before but in acting that you have to be at the very least compassionate towards your own character and you have to care about them and know that their life has more than just the words that you're delivering in the performance and that might make you more open to a belief system that does value this compassion and this empathy as part of it. I feel that hundred percent what you said, but I know for a fact there are other actors who are very good who don't think that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not a given, you know, it's not a prerequisite to being a good actor. I'll say that, but I believe that. Yeah. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for taking a few minutes out today and talking with us on Book Talk. It's been a pleasure to read your work and a pleasure to speak with you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Michael Imperioli is the author of the novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, and a contributor to the short story anthology, The Nicotine Chronicles, which is edited by Lee Child, and both are published by Akashic Books. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.